A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke. Welcome to A Brush With. In March this year, I went to Finsbury Park in London to the home of Phyllida Barlow, the great British sculptor, to interview her for this series. Tragically, Phyllida died just a few days later. So this conversation is a tribute to one of the most significant British artists of recent years. Ardently committed to sculpture and convinced of its special power, she was coruscatingly erudite and perceptive, yet also irreverent and suspicious of orthodoxies. This was evident in her combinations of simple materials such as wood, plaster and scrim, cement, paint and fabric. She managed to achieve at once awkwardness and grace, humour and pathos, the grand and the intimate. Hints to a deep knowledge of other artists abound in her work, yet hers was a singular language. She used exhibition space dramatically, with sculptures stretching to its heights and depths, occupying its walls and lurking in its corners, as if they were living entities feeling their way around, testing its parameters. Phyllida was born in 1944 in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the UK, where her father Erasmus Darwin Barlow, a great-grandson of Charles Darwin, was a psychiatrist researching brain trauma. Phyllida spoke often of childhood memories that related to the themes and forms of her work, like urban clamour, destruction and accumulation. She remembered the very strong experience of Erasmus taking her and her siblings on drives into London's bomb-damaged East End, and of her grandmother's cupboard under the stairs, where she kept every single thing that could be reused. From 1962, Phyllida studied at the Chelsea School of Art. From Chelsea, she went on to the Slade School of Fine Art. Her tutors could be supportive, like George Fullard and Elizabeth Frink, or shockingly dismissive, like Reg Butler, who told her, I'm not that interested because by the time you're 30, you'll be having babies and making jam. But she remembers, as you'll hear, extraordinarily strong ideas of what sculpture should or shouldn't be at that time. So a youthful anarchy, as she described it, led her to embrace emerging tendencies in Britain and especially in Europe and America. Phyllida became a tutor at the Slade in the late 1960s and continued to teach until 2009. Between the 1960s and the 2000s, presentations of her work were often self-generated in an abandoned attic, a school playground, a disused office, an old stocking factory, even thrown into the Thames. She'd begun to show her work more in the 2000s before she retired from teaching, but big success occurred once she became a full-time artist in 2009. A show at Studio Voltaire in South London in 2010 was followed the same year by a brilliantly conceived pairing at the Serpentine Gallery with the Iranian-born sculptor Neri Bagramian. Neri had written in Art Forum magazine the previous year of an epiphanic visit to Phyllida's home, where she saw what she described as rough and provisionally taped together structures. She said it was as if reality could not yet accommodate these still malleable ideas. A huge shift in Phyllida's life and career came when the gallery Hauser and Worth started to represent her around the same time. Her first show with the gallery was in 2011 in a space it had at the time in an Edwin Lutyens-designed former bank in Piccadilly, London. It was a magnificent exposition 
celebration of Phyllida's engagement with space, with towering blocks on stilts in the principal room, anthropomorphic hoops huddled in a downstairs lobby, and pom-poms in the attic. Though she continued to make small works and marvellous drawings, she was able to be increasingly ambitious in terms of size. An imaginative engagement with the environment and people around her was key. Her sculptures absorbed the flukes and chances of how things encounter each other physically in the world and were metaphors for experiences rather than similes, she said. She wanted her work to be itself, to stubbornly refuse to be like anything else. This was evident in an extraordinary series of works made in the 2010s, from Tip in 2013, a forest of cement, timber, steel mesh and fabrics that flowed out from the Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh, to Doc, her show cramming into the Duveen Galleries at Tate Britain in 2014, and perhaps most notably, her 2017 work, Folly, filling seemingly every inch of the British Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. In each case, she took on loaded spaces, the ghosts of artists past at the Carnegie and Tate and the National Pavilion of Britain in the year after the Brexit vote, an event that appalled her, with characteristic boldness and risk. Folly was the zenith of Phyllida's total environments, after which she wanted to focus more on what she called the single object. But shows at the Royal Academy in London in 2019 and the Haus der Kunst in Munich in 2021, among others, showed that her commitment to imposingness and irreverence remained unwavering. She wanted her sculptures to have an awkwardness, even an ugliness, but also to have compassion, and it's avowedly generous, empowering her viewer. She saw the encounter of audience and sculpture as a meeting. We're forced to walk around her works and look into or up to them, which she saw as a performative act rather than a passive one. This connection with space and time is one of the crucial elements of the work, and I began our conversation by asking her about an unattributed quote that she once approvingly mentioned to me, namely that space never moves but time does. Why did she find that a compelling statement? I think space is malleable. It's a material. It's not just an empty vacuum and I suppose for me sculpture whatever sculpture is I think it isn't just the object I think it's a sentient physicality of something that replaces us with its own physicality and therefore it's immediately problematic (laughs) but space to me is as dense and as thick and as sentient as materials whereas time is something for me to do with process and to do with memory to do with remembering and forgetting as much as it is to do with a clock ticking in fact possibly has very little to do with a clock ticking it's interesting in relation to your Venice Biennale show, because I know that while you made that show, there was lots of performance going on around you. Mm. And I remember you saying that it was was really interesting to you how, for you, the audience that greeted your work were the kind of performers rather than the performance coming to them and them being quite static in the Mm. performance works. And that struck me as, again, a really kind of important idea Mm. within your work. Yes, and I think the idea of sculpture as having some kind of sort of human opposition. I don't know how how to put it quite, but does sculpture or does the physical object, like theatre in a way, stand almost in opposition to our own flesh and blood live curiosity and placing an object there that might 
have associations. It might be like an arch or a tower or a chair or something, but but it isn't that. It is something that's taking up the space that you might want to occupy and that this experience of meeting these physical things which then have to be walked around or looked into or up to I think is a performative act and not a passive act. I just sometimes wonder just how visual sculpture is, you know, that that may, yes, it's all there to be seen and looked at, but is it something to do with the remains of that that remain with the viewer? You know, what do they remember about Rodin's kiss? You know, is it just the perfect view of it? Or is there something else that they remember that is not so visual, but a collection of sort of sentient guesses in a way? Whereas I think perhaps even with painting, I think there's a lot of physical engagement. I think the way people look at paintings absolutely fascinates me. You stand at sort of roughly two metres away or three, then you walk up to it and then you maybe kind of walk sideways. So you're almost reading it. But the language of sculpture, I would call it, it requires another aspect of our our sentient selves, our intellect, our psychology, etc., which I don't think is 100% visual. I would say painting is, and then maybe the residues of what remain with painting can transform into something else. But I think sculpture is, or the sculptural language is difficult to pin down. And you make it extra difficult to pin down when you engage with the space, don't you? Because I'm really conscious when I see your works that I'm stretching my body Mm -hmm. into all sorts of positions that I might not ordinarily, even with other kinds of sculpture. So it's that craning the neck up to make sure that I'm looking up right to the top of the sculpture. Mm. Sometimes it's crouching down, looking underneath it. You want to encourage a kind of genuinely three-dimensional experience and perhaps even more, you know. Yes, And I think if somebody said to me, and what's that about? It's complicated to answer that. You know, I haven't got a ready narrative as to what my work's about. I know about the acts that are needed to make these works and the desire that the works provoke for me, which is to make physical things clamber and climb and go to parts of the space that aren't usually necessarily used as a visual presentation. Therefore, maybe, yet again, what viewers may be left with is is quite ambiguous, you know. And uh, somebody the other night was saying that the Venice show was the worst experience he'd had, that it was so claustrophobic. And then we were talking about Brexit, and I said it was very much in a way, a very odd time to be having that Venice. And I remember we talked Mm. about that as as well, you know, and that I found it difficult and it did seem very claustrophobic. So this country had made a decision to become isolated and to reject the idea of how shared experiences across continents, etc., was a really positive thing. (laughs) It seemed to be pulling up the drawbridges and it it seems scary and I I think that hasn't gone away quite honestly right but 
So I think there are emotive words that I would associate with what I do rather than it being a pinned-down subject. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the terms that that person used to describe the effect of the work Mm. actually prove its success to a certain degree, even if they may have couched it in a kind of negative way. I think he, he was saying the sort of awfulness of it was in a way, a kind of positive experience as well. I mean, I'm not praising my work. I'm just thinking that I think there is a certain risk with ways of working which are emotive that perhaps avoid, you know, beauty, avoid the niceness of something or the fine tuning of craft. You know, there's a lot that gets jettisoned and I'm not sure that's always a good thing you know that one's left with things that are quite awkward and difficult and may even be ugly and what does that say and uh, the hope as the artist speaking is that perhaps you know being an alive artist contemporary artist we're kind of giving evidence of what it is to be alive now and therefore things are often to do with a friction between an aesthetic charm and the sheer brutality of the times that we might be living in. It's a complicated equation. You know, there are artists who can make beautiful work, and justifiably so, and maybe that's a great reflection in an oppositional way to the things that are going on. (laughs) <laughs> what I love about that is so you, on the one hand there is a sort of sense in which you can address Brexit in a kind mm. of oblique way or or perhaps a more direct way even than that but you can address these kind of larger themes mm. through kind of an abstract-ish language but at the same time you can deal with a kind of everyday brutalities <laughs> to a certain degree and it is things like paving stones sticking up <laughs> it's you know barriers in streets and so on it really is that sort of basic you're walking through the street and acknowledging what's around you and thinking about its sculptural significance mm-hmm. or, or how it could be made into some form of sculptural form yes uh, i think the everyday does fascinate me but i think also that through the process of making a translation happens where the everyday becomes absurd because it's been made out of absurd materials that don't stand up to everyday use. So gradually the everydayness, the familiarity of it gets eroded through the process of production, you know, a bit like photocopying something over and over again. So it gradually fades and something else replaces that. That's really interesting. And I think one of the ways that that's really manifested in the work is through colour in the sense that you have often said that you draw colour from what you see around you mm. it's, cut, it's almost ready-made colour yes to a exactly. certain degree that's a very good way of describing it but it gets transformed through the work still mm. doesn't it yes I mean colour when did I start probably in 1962 or something started using colour and that was very much in relationship to what was going on at that time it was right coming up to the shows at the Whitechapel of that time called the New Generation Shows. And, you know, young artists in art schools were seeing this work beginning to flourish in art schools, you know, and coming from all sorts of corners of the world, actually, you know, even though sometimes we weren't seeing the actual physical things. The journals were beginning to show these things, and it was a thrill that... 
surface could be something that could either be impregnated like resin all the resin could be it could be red or yellow resin but it could also be spray painted like cars so there were two quite distinct ways of using color and i think i became fascinated in the idea of what color actually does to the surface underneath it you know the resin surface under if it's applied you know and how does that affect what you might see first whether it's the blueness or the shape i think that then led into all kinds of experiments with actually being very painterly on the sculptures and themselves over the years and i love the fact that there's also a way that you use color to accentuate certain elements of making so for instance there might be joins between particular parts of the sculpture Mm. that will then be spray painted or painted Mm. almost to say look how I've made this and yet there's that sort of acknowledgement the self-evident materiality of what you've done and yet somehow it's transported through that sort of gesture if you like. Yes I think um, for me making has always been difficult you know I've not been a, a natural maker but I've loved it and I I think the emphasis on the well-made, just beginning to realise that, to me, was so tedious and boring. I didn't have it in me to be a craftsperson. Therefore, there was a way of maybe saying, these are almost like wounds. These are fixtures that I know they're not good, but I find they're texture and their immediacy and their spontaneity I love that so that's going to have a flash of paint on it because it's part of the being in the moment of how the work has been constructed and also combined with maybe identifying things that needed working on again and then finally for me sometimes the paint is the last thing to be done on the work so it's like No, you can stop now because a lot of the works I find quite difficult to actually finish. So when they start to have that treatment, it's like, yes, that's it. (laughs) When you're making the work in the gallery, because obviously you have to take things down from the studio and then reinstall them, remake them in spaces. That Mm. finishing must be very fraught. It must be the the uncertainty that comes with that. I can imagine on on the one hand there's a sort of an adrenaline in it, but it must also be quite daunting. I think the whole thing, like the the Venice one or like the Tate or like recently in Hanover, the actual performative side of it is nerve-wracking, of going to the place and just working with Adam and Frankie, who are the two main studio techs I work with and having rehearsed things in the space I mean like at the fruit market we rehearsed various things for Hanover we rehearsed various things then when when we got there it was just an entirely different experience you know and there is something about that performative thing that's both thrilling and nerve-wracking you know I mean in a way Hanover which was last October or something I still feel there were things about it that didn't quite work because it was such a short time and making things under that pressure I don't think it's 
100% pulled it off, you know. So there are things to learn there still about that way of working when I take the materials there. I've had to rethink a lot of the big works because the shipping costs have tripled since COVID. And I think there's a general feeling that when the costs get that high of shipping large sections of big installations, it's just getting kind of untenable, really. So I thought what I would do would try and keep the smaller works going, which really provide all the information for the bigger works and develop them much more. And then when I have the opportunity of a big space like Hanover, we just order all the materials out there. And in a way, it puts a kind of restriction on what the work is going to be. But perhaps that's a good challenge, you know, under these circumstances. Kind of keeps the language growing to a certain degree because you have to rethink how you do things. And that's always been there, hasn't it? You know, right from the start when you weren't showing your work very much, but you were installing it in the outside world or just in your home and it became, you know, an audience of one and all all that kind of thing. Um, Your work has always responded to necessity, hasn't it? Definitely. We're working on a show in Toronto, Mokar in Toronto, and organising the materials. Therefore, I'm making the smaller ideas, beginning to make them there. And it's a sort of extraordinary, awkward space with uh, lots of different shops and (laughs) coffee places and very interesting large columns there. I want to find out how to use that space. But one of the things that maybe working in this way makes more difficult is the organic shape, you know. (laughs) because of the way I build those shapes up, and that takes time. So it's going to be interesting to see whether I don't return to things that I was doing possibly 40 years ago, you know, which are much more immediate materials like paper and tape and things. I'm looking forward to it, you know. And knowing that these things are more like events, that the materials will then be redistributed at the end of the show to students or anyone who wants them. You know? and So that it, it all seems a much more positive way of using the times we're in at the moment rather than yet more crates with stuff in them that gets, you know, ferried across oceans and things. I think this for me also is, as you say, born out of necessity, but trying to push the barriers of that in quite an extreme way. (laughs) So let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests now. Oh, yeah. Mm. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? My parents had three books, Cezanne, Monet and Van Gogh, and they were very old Fiden books that had these sort of canvas covers on them. I think a lot of people have had them in their their houses and it, I think it was Van Gogh that really got to me and I think it was a painting called The Yellow House which had this starlit sky and I just remember being mesmerised by it and actually wanting to know how he painted it and I think children have an extraordinary ability for objectivity you know which again is quite sort of practical they're not saying, ooh, isn't that odd, you know. They seem to skip that whole 
way where they need a handle to hang on to in order to understand something. That's an adult. It's a learned response, basically. Yes, exactly. What does it mean? I don't think children care less about what it means. It's more, what am I looking at? What do I recognise? What do I not recognise? And then to ask those sort of questions that I think are fantastic in the in the Tate show. I remember this primary school and the children there and one girl stepped forward and said, what's it like working so high up? <laughs> and I had to break it to her that I actually didn't go high up. Other people did. <laughs> but, I mean, the fact that she had thought about working high up and what that meant, it was so so exactly what, in a way, I was hoping people might be curious about, you know, the the limits of the work, how far the work might go and how limited it might be, etc. Yeah, Yeah, that's fascinating. And do you think much about the audience once you've made the work? I mean, obviously, because you've been an audience for it to a certain degree, because it's being constructed in Mm. the space. Mm. Do you, once it's done, once the door's closed and the opening's over, etc., are you preoccupied at all by what happens Yes, I'm absolutely fascinated by the audience and whether there's anything that fires their imagination anything that creates a curiosity in its own right you know not because it can tell a story necessarily but just does its physicality arouse something in them of danger or of a vista a view a sensation of landscape or what are the qualities that might come forward for an an audience and uh, what do they remember and how do they remember it I think I find that a huge part of thinking about the things in retrospect and which historical artist do you return to the most today at the moment this is a book called The Sculpture of This Century by Michel Souffaut and it's got every single hideous sculpture from the mid-20th century that you could possibly want to look at. And I just love it. I mean, for years, I, you know, especially as a young student, after I'd had all the infatuation with Henry Moore, it was then, no, yeah, absolutely not. And then I think with the sort of rise of Duchamp's legacy, I would say being the sort of triumphant (laughs) winner of the the 20th century visual arts race. Yes, brilliant, but I think how he's become processed is really through a kind of intellectualisation and theoretical intellectualisation of his work, which has been like perfect fodder for PhD culture and for academic thinking. I think the description in... Calvin Tompkins' book on Duchamp of Pierre Matisse taking down Etant Donné from his flat and taking the wall off. And there was just this mass of string and bits of cardboard stuck together with tape. And it's such a brilliant revelation about Duchamp that come hell or high water, he would physically make this act of spying through the whole, you know, the dirty side of making is the sort of winning streak for me. And I think Duchamp was actually a cack-handed maker. When you see the models of the urinal, the fountain, they're absolutely wonderful. There's a 
papier-mâché one. And you realise that he had this incredible tactile curiosity that seems to get overlooked. I mean, that essay of his called The Creative Act, where he describes, you know, the refining of molasses to become sugar, that kind of transmutation. But it's something that I feel the kind of deconstruction, semiotic, linguistic side of art has become incredibly dominant as a gene. I would say even in a lot of the kind of identity politics that we have now, all of which is extremely necessary and has really turned the soil over and given remarkable new art histories on every level, you know. I think that in combination with Duchamp, to me, is a very specific mindset and the one where the language of making or the, the sentient language of ourselves, I think, hasn't had the same kind of intellectual backing. I mean, I may be wrong because maybe I haven't read enough art theory. It's just something I sense. And I think artists like myself who work with sentient responses or work with very quick acts of making. And also, importantly for me, they work with approximation. I think we need to stand up and make our, our opinions more articulate on that front, you know, because I think there's an equalising process that needs to go on. <laughs> Sounds very evangelical, and I don't mean it in that way, but I think there can be hierarchies in art, I think, that grow up, you know, and become quite substantial. It's interesting with the book that you're talking about, that idea of the, you know, these makers, these mid-century kind of titans who yes. have fallen away. So, I mean, it must yes. obviously have a connection with, you know, when you were at Chelsea totally, and the Slade. Yeah. You were surrounded by many of these people who were probably in that yes. book, aren't they? Yes, yes. And, and then my total rejection of them. But... Um, when I started to think about this issue of invented form, what is it? So I started looking at Lipschitz again and all those artists, Louise Nevelson, who I adore, and Lipschitz, who I love as well, and Max Ernst sculpture, mm. you know, so many of them that I think... There's an inherent darkness in their work, which I admire a lot. You know, it's not comfortable viewing, you know, and it's not obsessed with beauty. It's it, it's obsessed with another kind of language, which I think is about a reflection of a humanitarian identity. You know, one thing meets another and they, in a way, oppose, but... There's a reconciliation there as well. That's really interesting. And, and you've talked about the kind of morality, going again back to that hierarchy's point that you were making. Duchamp has almost become an orthodoxy, which is really strange, but, but, exactly. but it is true. Yeah. And you were surrounded by orthodoxies, mm. literally notions of what was good and what was bad oh, in God. sculpture. Yes, and I, I think anyone who feels they're bad at something... I mean, I just spent my entire art school years, knowing I was no good at things and constantly having pointed out to me the bad side of things. And I'm forever grateful to people like George Fullard, who's no one's really heard of now, or Liz Frink, etc., for saying, oh, that's 
that's great what you're doing, you know, carry on. And that sort of brush with something that was not expecting something to be good, you know, but was allowing the processes of making to take over. And I think that was a time where those two things in the early 60s were in conflict. You know, there were new ideas about art education beginning to flourish, but there was still the old guard that was very, very sure-footed about what was good and what was bad. (laughs) (laughs) And And you're right, the morality around that was astonishing. And I think for any student trying to fight their way out of orthodoxies. I think it's incredibly difficult, actually, with the warm embrace of the institution, sort of even now, you know, holding on to certain values, maybe unwittingly, and they become the established mantra of that particular institution, you know. Absolutely. You're about to show at Chile de Lecu, <laughs> which is obviously associated with a very particular sculpture who I know mm. you admire. Mm. And I wonder how much do you engage with Chilida ahead of that process or do you have to kind of blot him out almost, you know, because he's got such a distinctive language and you're about to engage with it mm. in terms of place. Do you have to engage with it as you're making the work? We're or- using a lot of work that hasn't been seen that Hauser has in their storage things, which is quite exciting actually because you know a lot of it just doesn't get out of its box you know so so I'm only making one new work which we're making now then all the the other works are older works so I'm looking forward to that and they seem really great there because I'm not actually sort of commenting on Chilida it's just really exciting to be shown with him you know <laughs> something i never thought would happen a million years but he he is an extraordinary artist actually i think you know there's something very particular about what one might call limitations that he imposes on himself the materials you know and then the things he adds to a material very very simple languages but not a minimalist language at all you know and I think this is an extraordinary thing between Europe and America you know where I think Europe forever has its past hanging round its neck and I think that inevitably affects artists in all sorts of ways. America is still a comparatively new kind of visual Culture. I mean, even if one goes back to the 16th century or something, it's still, apart from the indigenous art there, which, of course, is forever needing to be given a higher profile than mm-hmm. it does, I think there's a very, very different art historical trajectory in the state, and that's reflected, I think, in what we see in the museums around the states. You know, there seems to be a great emphasis on the 60s and the 70s, you know, or or the 50s and the 60s, actually, 40s, 50s and 60s. Mm. Every museum seems to have at its heart, you know, those huge abstract expressionist paintings and things that just came before Mm. and after. It's it's fascinating. Indeed. Gida said this curious thing, which was that he was a realist sculptor. Mm. He, He rejected abstraction, said he was a realist. And it struck me that actually that's a really good way of talking about your work too isn't it 
Yes, I think I was reading these things and he elaborates on that as well, you know, that it's what can be done to things in the moment, you know, and how you... I don't know what his exact language are, but it was almost as though the material will tell you how far it can go. You know, you don't need to impose a kind of terrifying regime on these things. And I think I can totally empathise with that, that I'm not particularly interested in materials. I'm not going to go to some remote factory and look at the latest way a plastic can be used. I think I admire people who do that, think sort of fantastic, and it certainly gives a whole new language to making a materiality. But I think I just want a material that I'm familiar with that will do the job that I think I want it to do. I suppose it's a kind of impatience as much as anything else. (laughs) Which contemporary artist do you most admire? The only thing I could think of really is that this sort of tsunami of artists globally forms this extraordinary connection. We're all kind of on the same page, actually. And um, I think that that means the minute you decide to take action and make something, it doesn't matter whether you've got a gallery or haven't got a gallery, whether you're just working in some shitty kind of bedsit somewhere or whether you've got a really flash studio somewhere. The minute you make that starting point, everybody, all artists are actually equal. Yes, okay, they might have very different financial arrangements, but that moment you decide to take that action, there is no difference between someone who's got a major retrospective and somebody who hasn't got anything. And I think that's a really remarkable aspect of being an artist there is a moment of absolute equality it's all the social economic things that then happen that create all these in a way false hierarchies that does connect to then why I find it so difficult to single out I mean there are so many that Mm. I just love looking at I don't know where to begin with (laughs) how to sort that out. I mean, in in this show in Paris, we've just had with Rachel and Alison, there's a work of Alison's there that I think is Alison Wilding is absolutely remarkable work. So that's been my latest (laughs) obsession. I mean... You you were part of a kind of teaching core with Alison, right, at the Slade. I'm always intrigued by that, you know, as artist tutors. (laughs) You know, in the lunch breaks, are you comparing notes about students, about about your own works? Are you talking through things? Is it is is there a kind of camaraderie between teaching staff? Or do you yes, think- and I think there's friction as well. And I think people can come with very very strong beliefs or not have any beliefs at all and don't know quite where they are with how you work with students. It's fascinating, actually, yeah, because I think. Teaching is the wrong word, you know. I think the students teach the teachers as much. You know, it's a very, very shared experience. You don't know what you're going to get back from a student, you know. Mm. And I think there's no point going in as a preacher, quite honestly, you know. And maybe I'm a bit suspicious of kind of cult teachers, you know. (laughs) 
I remember you saying that you encountered Joseph Boyce in the Tate sort of very early on oh, yeah. and there was a sort of whole kind of um, oh, aura horrific. around yes, him. Yeah. Yes, yeah. It, yeah. I think it's also when you know that you will be excluded. You know? <laughs> I think that kind of thing of not belonging, I think it's a very powerful issue within the arts where judgments are kind of made vicariously and so often as an artist you'll find yourself on the wrong end of that you know it's very peculiar society I think actually now is in a way at its most most vociferous at one end of it and most relaxed at the other end of it so I think it's a good time what do you have pinned to the studio wall nothing <laughs> I don't have a collection of things at all <laughs> do you have your own drawings around you no no i think my workplaces are very hostile environments it all goes back to having children you know and the time in the studio being so short that there was no time for anything else other than go in there do something and then go and get them from school you know it's really this kind of expedient an urgency, a necessity to act, you know. I mean, children and being an artist are very incompatible and that's not being unpleasant to my children in any way who, who are all artists and some of them have children so they now know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it is, for me and for Fabian as well, it was a huge training ground that we're sort of able to use even now that you grab every moment you've got so there's not many perks that the studios are just a place of action you know and time in the tiktok sense has to be used extremely expediently so when you're drawing do you take the same action so again it's in you're in the studio you you need to make drawings or yes. paintings you, you yeah. again you apply that same whether it's sculpture drawing whatever yeah it's that same yeah must act i, I mean must act quickly. Yeah. possibly times for rumination or are more complex where those happen, you know, possibly in the early hours of the morning or doing some other chore, you know, sort of double think, you know, where you're doing one thing, maybe a domestic thing, and you're, I'm kind of thinking about where to go next, you know. And I mean, I do drive a lot around London. It's a long drive to the studio. It took an hour and a half to get back today. So there's this opportunity to kind of ruminate on the work in that way. Do you find that you ruminate on the work more now than you once did? I know that some artists who have been making work for a period of decades mm. find that, that more work happens in the head mm. than with the hands, as it were. No, I think almost the other way round, actually, yeah. Because I'm slightly changing things to this process where the smaller works will be the anchor to what might happen later on with bigger works. Not as copies, but as clues in a way of how to proceed. It means developing the smaller works has its own urgency, really. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? Probably Tate Modern, actually, yes. I think their collection is fantastic, actually, you know. <laughs> it is. And, and you showed there recently, of course, 
there was an artist's room oh, yes, display. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Mm. And it was a great display, I thought. Mm. And one of the things that really struck me was the way that you use that space and the opportunity to have quite severe lighting to project mm. these fantastic shadows. <laughs> and I wondered about shadows and your work, because mm. you draw mm. shadows. When you yes. draw forms, you draw shadows to them very mm. often. Mm. And about the role of shadow as, mm. as a material almost. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think one of the things is the solidity of something, then how its shadow is the opposite of that and also reflects something about its temporal qualities. I mean, in a gallery it doesn't, but one's aware of shadows having this sense of movement about them. I find that something that gives the object maybe slightly less stability. And I think when I did the set for Idomineo two years ago now in Munich, it was incredible when the lighting person came on and could do these things that made the objects actually disappear. Because the director of the opera house, I said, well, I'm, I'm not familiar with making stage sets. I said, I don't want stage sets from you. I want sculptures. And that was like some huge liberation because they could make the sculptures turn round. And then having an audience that was static and the sculptures moved, there was something about how the light and the shadows performed then that was just very, very theatrical. You know, it was sort of, I think there are, in the history of British sculpture, there are a lot of very strong rules like, decoration, no, artifice, no, you know, mm. what is real, bronze is real, stone is real. As you said earlier, these slightly moral edicts and something like theatricality, which I am very attracted to, and its ephemerality, you know, the curtain comes down and that's it or whatever. I thought it gave these sculptural forms more sense of their weight and all those kind of qualities that I found terrific, actually, just <laughs> exciting. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? Oh, so many. I mean, I could begin with seeing Peter Pan when I was five years old and just knowing there was something about that that I wanted and I didn't know what it was that I wanted, but I hung on to the chair seats and would not leave the theatre because I thought if I stayed, they'd do it all over again. And I think it was such a strong experience of something having a reality about it, but being out of one's reach. And I think actually cinema is especially gained in the, the 60s and 70s. I think the films of Robert Bresson, Pickpocket and A Man Escaped, I don't know if yeah, you know, no I think... Yeah. A man escaped where he takes apart his prison cell in order to use absolutely everything in it as a means for his escape. I think when I saw that way back, it was like an epiphany that you could use that claustrophobic, incredibly limited experience of being and threat. You know, he didn't know whether he was going to be shot the next day. The, the combination of so many things, the sound outside the sound of the trains going past, everything having this incredible significance that was taking his mind beyond his present circumstances and then making the the rope 
out of the matter. I mean, it just was like such a grand metaphor of an artist who is kind of trapped by their own desire to be creative, but also somehow frustratingly limited by it as well. I think that was a, a huge epiphany. And there, there are so many, it's difficult, but I think cinema of that time was a, a massive visionary experience. The interesting thing hearing you talking about that is this idea that I always feel when I'm looking at your work about the physical manifestation of the work leading to an imaginative space. <laughs> and that <clears throat> idea that the imagination of touch, it seems to me, is mm. hugely important in your work. That that I don't know if I actually want to reach out and touch it, but I, I have a sense of how it would feel to touch it. And I think that's a really interesting space in which the, the sculptures exist, mm. I guess. Mm. And I think touch is psychologically right, you know, everything from repulsion to huge desire. It's a very restless sentience, you know, and um, I think also the movement of a body with a totally still, silent, dumb body, I think there's something about that that's sort of absurd in a way. You know, it isn't a Benini that's actually telling an, an amazing story that possibly has more to do with theatre and possibly even film <laughs> <laughs> and picture-making than, than what I would consider sculpture to be, you know, that I think is like the weather or temperature or all, all sorts of qualities of our daily lives that don't take an object form. And I think it's wonderful what you say about touch, because I think that is an invisible language that goes on between a viewer and a thing. You know? <laughs> Which writers or poets do you return to the most? I think one of the greatest books I know is The Idiot by Dostoevsky. God, everything I say sounds so <laughs> like a sort of smug cultural <laughs> not, <at all. laughs> not, not I haven't got anything excitingly new that I can say but I think the way Dostoevsky is almost like how long is a piece of string you have no idea where you're being taken and how the characters unfold and you just sense his observation is so almost clinical it's almost surgical and uh, it's absolutely even-handed, whether it's a child, an animal or, you know, a grown-up or adult or anything. There's something about the way he places the character there. So you have to work out what it is about this person. And almost as though there isn't a story, you know, it's just about who we are now, you know, and being led by the hand and then perhaps rather sort of abandoned to work out what on earth is going on. I think it's amazing stuff. Obviously, I've only read it in translation, so I have no idea what. <laughs> That's often the thing, isn't it? What must it feel like to read the original words? God, of the exactly. Yeah. Well, we went to the Prado and I saw the Las Meninas for the first time, the original. I don't know, have you seen it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It is an extraordinary experience. And the kind of forensic inquiry that surrounds that picture of 
what is he looking at? Is he looking into a mirror? You know, what angle is the mirror? You know, is the whole thing painted from a reflection? It's just astonishing, I think. And to think that there was no photography <laughs> to guide you by the hand of people's expressions and things. There's this strange moment he chose to paint that in. It's just a whole psychological thriller because there's something perilous about it. It's not comfortable. You feel the optimism of the little princess is is fragile, you know, with these dark figures sort of hovering all around. It's, yeah. it's because yeah. it's so pregnant, that whole period with death, you know, yes, all of those exactly. children were dying. Yeah. Yes, you know, yeah, the hope yeah. that they would have time and again that an infante or an infanta would live yes, and, and yeah. they would die. Yes. So that's, it, it feels weighty Morbid, like that, doesn't yes, it? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And the, and the space is claustrophobic because it's so indiscernible in mm. some way mm. yeah. that a work could be that poured over that discussed mm. Foucault literally wrote about a book about it you yeah. know I and must yet read remain that, a mystery yes know. yes yeah we tried to work it out afterwards and we set it all up and yes I mean we won't go into it now but I reckon it's a mirror at an angle that cuts yeah Etc. Etc. <laughs> you ought to write. You ought to write something about it. What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? I just love Mahler, Beethoven, Bach, a lot of contemporary composers. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just so uncool. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have to be cool, but but the interesting thing there, I think, is about you know a lot of obviously a lot of pieces of music by all of those people mm. are wordless. Mm. Uh, yes. you, would, would you choose a symphony over an opera or well, does it matter? yes, we went um, last week to the new production of Rheingold, the Robert Jones one, and it was astounding, just absolute. He really rammed it kicking and screaming into the 21st century. There was Brexit there, there was Ukraine there, there was the immigration crisis, there was Everything was there. It was just an astonishing production and absolutely remarkable singing. But that for two and three quarter hours, it could hold the audience absolutely transfixed. You know, I mean, it, it was a triumph. And I thought where theatre really does become significant, you know, it has a point, you know, in that it's carrying all these revelations about who and what we are now and just really throwing it at one, you know, quite extraordinary. So that was the <laughs> the latest thing. But um, yes, I think the Matthew Passion is one of my greatest pieces of music that I always look forward to this time of year because <laughs> they usually do a recording of it. I just think it's the most extraordinary, again, powerful description of grief and maybe some kind of sense of redemption from grief, you know. And I don't mean that just as a religious thing. Um, I mean it as a humanitarian thing, that there's a great sense of humanity about it as a work. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? No, not really. We're a huge family now and grandchildren, everything. So we're still 
really working time has to be optimize if that's the right word. You know? <laughs> so yes, I will get up at six and go to the studio because I know I can leave the studio at two and I will have had a day's work, you know. So we're still very much on that kind of routine. You're still it, getting to the studio and yes, acting straight yes, away. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Urgency seems to be the um, discipline. <laughs> if you could live with just one work of art, what would it be? It would have to be the Velasquez. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> it would just go in here. <laughs> and lastly, what's art for? I think it's a remarkable revelation of the human mind that isn't about a function. It's the opposite. It doesn't aspire to proclaim its use, especially from the 20th century onwards, it's not making a religious comment or even a necessarily a social comment, although I think that will always be there. It's actually about, I am here now, and this is part of who I am, and this will evidence that, and it will therefore evidence the time we're living in. So there is something almost archaeological. But above all, I think art is a form of anthropology, as much as it is a visual discipline. It's actually telling us something about ourselves. <laughs> I think it's a tragedy if that doesn't get fully acknowledged. I'm so terrified of the politics of our time and how things can just be abandoned because they seem to have no economic value as such, you know. And I think that notion of wealth determining value is hugely problematic now. But art is the most remarkable reflection of ourselves, as is music and all the other creative disciplines. Philida, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. The exhibition that Philida and I discussed at Chida Lecu near San Sebastian in Spain continues until the 22nd of October. And the exhibition that she mentioned at Mocha in Toronto opens on the 8th of September and continues until the 4th of February 2024. Production, editing and sound design on a brush with are by David Clack and the producer is Amy Dawson. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. Many thanks to Alice Hagenauer, Ellie Hawley and Chloe Kinsman of Hauser & Worth and especially to Fabian Peake and his and Philida's family. I'm enormously grateful to have had this opportunity and others before it to talk to Fida de Barlow. Thank you for listening. The Brushwith is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand. <laughs>